This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks, and thanks for tuning in to AOA today on this Tuesday, February 1st. The months are rolling over, the calendar is changing, but agriculture the work continues. We'll be talking today with Don Close. He's a senior Rabo Research Food and Agribusiness Analyst. We'll be talking about how he views this beef supply chain going forward. Chandler Gould, the CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers, will be joining me a little bit later in the show. And in segment three, Senator Charles Grassley of Iowa will be taking the time to talk to us. We're going to get an update on the cattle market transparency bill and other things that he's working on in D.C. And finally, at the end of the show, we're going to chat with Carl Setzer. He's a grains analyst with AgriVisor, and boy, these markets are moving yet again today. So we'll get the full story on that. But first, cattle con- I tell you what, I need some more coffee today. The cattle convention down in Houston is underway yesterday. Their Cattlemen's College kicked off, and one of their presenters was Don Close. He's from Robo Research. Don, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Good morning. Happy to be with you. Don, you take a look at the beef market in detail. And, you know, we talk about market pricing quite a bit on this show, but you've also been analyzing the supply chain. I know you've got a report coming out. Tell us what are the factors that you think are changing in the beef supply lines in 2022? I think as we we look over the previous 20 years and we were continuously working on a just-in-time delivery system uh, and, and in a system that was as efficient as possible. And COVID has forced us to reevaluate that. So in simplified terms, we're going from a just-in-time to a just-in-case. And when we do that, if you look at, at labor versus automation, if you look at the challenges that we have with the transportation network, both ocean freight, rail, truck, if you, if you look at the changing consumers purchasing uh, habits where they're buying more and more online meal kits uh, packaging is changing and it needs to be more durable and and so that puts us in the conundrum of longer shelf life with better packaging but then it gives us a a sustainability problem with waste management so it's going to bring a whole set of challenges yeah, I would say that it is. Don, the meal kit point is a great one. I don't often think about those, but they have exploded in popularity over the pandemic. Is that a way more people are getting exposed to the beef industry? Most certainly so. And and not only the meal kits, but, but home delivery. And in many cities, cities in Europe and East Coast in the United States, a lot of firms are now offering 10-minute delivery. And you, you think that... We've gone from, in, in less than, than two and a half years, we've gone from conventional grocery store shopping to now uh, the Amazon, uh, you know, Walmart's delivery. It's changing very rapidly. It's interesting, Don, to see the retailer moving to a just-in-case model while the consumer is now more than ever a just-in-time shopper with those 10-minute delivery options. What's all this doing to beef pricing? I imagine all the the costs to put better packaging in place are going to come out of somebody's pocket. Don, what does this mean for producers? You're bringing up a great point. And if you look at all of the, the various challenges that I mentioned, I don't know that any one of them by themselves would be that. Uh, constricting. But when we add them all together, clearly there's going to be more cost added to the system. And, you know, we've spent the last two years looking at the price disparity of retail meat prices opposed to the price that producers are getting for livestock on the farm. And and that will improve. And, you know, we saw the, the cattle inventory numbers yesterday that, that cattle supplies are, are contracting more rapidly than expected. So that producer will will get a bigger share. But as we add all of these added costs into the production system, it's going to be a hurdle 
to get that live steer to cut out or live steer to retail price ratios back to historical levels. Yeah, Don, it is. I mean, there's just such a gap there between the current spread and uh, the historical levels. You touched on consumer preferences. They're buying beef differently. Don, are they buying different cuts of beef now that they're cooking at home in a large uh, large part? You know, I think the, the big thing is, is traditionally the, the high end of choice, the prime product went to white tablecloth establishments. As, as the industry is producing more and more, uh, we have a choice in prime grading rate constantly on top of 80%, and, and we will see a percentage of prime roughly at 10%. So as that product flow changed and that product started to go into retail, consumers had the, the realization that they could buy a phenomenal product and prepare it at home, and I think that's a trend that's going to stick around. Well, that's good to hear. There is some some delicious beef options out there. Don, as you look out through 2022, we've got a lot of focus from Washington, D.C. on the cattle market. Do you see that impacting market prices at all as this year rolls on? I would like to think that uh, we can we can get to a, to a resolve on a lot of this. I I'd still think there's uh, a, a tremendous amount of risk with government intervention and the the unintended consequences in my opinion is greater than the benefits of of mandated trade uh, by regulatory means yeah and we'll be talking with senator grassley here in just a few minutes about his cattle market price transparency bill but don before we let you go i wanted to circle back to that just in case mindset that retailers have does this mean they're going to be stockpiling more beef potentially freezing it and then marketing it uh, just by having it in their coolers that's exactly right what i was trying to look at with the the research of this report is if we change, if we build elasticity into the system, and so really our ability to to hold, you know, live cattle are a highly perishable item, and and to think that it's we're going to be dependent on on cattle feeders for the ebb and flow of of demand, depending upon whatever the the social or global status is. So I really tried to take a look at post-harvest interventions and things that we could do to build that inventory of product, extend the shelf life of, of product post-harvest to have an inventory on hand that in the event, whether it's COVID, whether it's trade-related, but we, we won't face the issue that we had in 2021 with the risk of, of uh, empty shelves. Yeah, those grocers do not want to see their grocery store shelves posted on social media with no food. Don Close, research analyst with Robbo Research. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Don. You're more than welcome. Thank you. And folks, stick around when AOA returns. Chandler Gould, the CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers, will be with us. And we'll be talking about the growing wheat acreage in this country. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So, when was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station.
DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day, our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to FDA.gov slash BeSafeRx. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us here for AOA Today. Coming up next, we are going to be talking with Chandler Gould. He's the CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers. Chandler, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. You know, as we look at the acreage battle that's coming here in this year, Chandler, for the first time in a long time, we're seeing domestic growers here in the U.S. add to their wheat acreage. It's got to be a fun time to be in the wheat industry right now. Well, it definitely is. You know, we're very pleased to see that uh, winter uh, winter wheat acres are looking like they're up about 2% um, from the previous years, but they're up 13% over 2020. So we're looking at roughly about uh, 34.5 to uh, 35 million acres of just winter wheat alone. So once we add on spring wheat next year, uh, hopefully we'll be moving back into those uh, higher 40s where we have been for several decades. Absolutely. You know, I'm hearing farmers from, uh, you know, not traditional wheat growers exploring it this year as a crop. Chandler, wheat is finding some uh, some opportunity here in 2022, isn't it, both domestically and internationally? Um, absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the main things that is driving that are clearly some of the issues that we continue to have within the supply chain, but then just also the dramatic uh, inflation or, or just increase in input uh, that, that is required for uh, production agriculture. And, and so, you know, with wheat uh, being yet still an intensively managed commodity, uh, when you look at how many passes over the field, how much fertilizer and how much crop protection input uh, tools that we need, I think a lot of growers, just as you, as you mentioned, who may not be um, historically long-time wheat growers, are really looking to our crop uh, to help cut their costs so that they can still be profitable in this next production year. Chandler, you touched on some of the supply chain issues that have plagued, well, all of us since COVID kicked off. On the wheat front, as you look at at how wheat is fitting into this global supply chain, what are some of the concerns you've got about the wheat's access? Well, you know, clearly our biggest issues are, are in two places. One on the domestic side. You know, um, and let me back up just a little bit. I know this is, uh, let me back up just a little bit. We have plenty of wheat. We have plenty of flour. 
But the issues that we're seeing here on the domestic side are, are further down the supply chain with, with COVID absences, whether that's in the mills or whether that's uh, in, in food factories or, or food plants and things along those lines. So that's why you're seeing some uh, products not on the shelf. As a matter of fact, my sister literally sent me a picture of her grocery store uh, up in Michigan where she lives that, that, that multiple shelves were just completely bare, not just of wheat products, but just in general. So domestically, that's one of the major supply chain issues that we're facing. And then port congestion that you're seeing on the on the west coast and everywhere else you know we export 50% of the wheat grown in this country uh, with a large portion of it uh, going to that asian pacific realm Though Mexico is our largest uh, buyer, that that, uh, major export market there heading out west is extremely important to us. And and that port congestion due to COVID and and lack of workers is is some of the major issues that we continue to face. And Chandler, just since we've got you, I've been asking this question to everybody who deals with the supply chain. Are are things getting better? Are you hearing from members that, that the export situation, at least at the ports on the west coast, is starting to improve? Um, we are seeing a little bit uh, less congestion heading that direction, and, and I do think things will continue to improve. You know, this is this is the time when we really need to clear out a lot of that. I mean, we're not really exporting a whole lot. We're about to head into our, you know, our, 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 our winter uh, harvest as we head into March. I know it's hard to believe, but, you know, in, in six, seven weeks, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have planting and everything else starting down in the southern part of the United States. And so um, I, I do think that we'll get through the port congestion. Uh, but then the other flip side of that, too, is I worry about rail and just infrastructure and having enough truckers to move things. And so that's why uh, it was very important for us to pass and work on the infrastructure bill that the administration uh, just signed into law last year, you know, to help us with railways and, and, and waterways and roadways to, to make sure domestically and internationally that we can continue to get our wheat products to those important domestic and international markets. Absolutely. We've got to have the tools to move the product. And as you mentioned, that export market, there's been uh, there's been discussions, I understand, happening in Washington, D.C. about how India is treating rice underneath the World Trade Organization. Chandler, can you give us an update? What's the situation there with India? Absolutely. So uh, the uh, NOG and the U.S. wheat growers and our, and our rice producers have asked um, uh, the USTR and, and Ambassador Catherine Tai, uh, as long as well as Secretary uh, Tom Vilsack, to bring a case against India under the WTO, and this is very similar to a case that both uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Rice and Nog uh, brought against China for their internal and domestic subsidies. Uh, India is doing the exact same thing. They have not been a good player ever since they've joined the WTO. And roughly they are costing um, U.S. rice and wheat growers about $600 million in lost sales a year. And so we've had some great champions. We had about 28 members of the House of Representatives send a letter to Secretary Vilsack and, and to Ambassador Tai back in January of last year. And then a parallel letter was just sent in December uh, by Senator Bozeman, who's the ranking member on the Senate Ag Committee, uh, also continuing to encourage both uh, Ambassador Tai and Secretary Vilsack to bring a case against the WTO to level that international playing field so that our U.S. wheat and rice growers can play on fair footing. And, and again, just to repeat that, $600 million a year in lost sales due to these internal uh, domestic supports that India provides to the rice and wheat growers. And so basically, if I understand it, Chandler, the, the allegation is that India is paying these farmers a substantial chunk of their income, which allows them to sell wheat more cheaply in India, which costs us sales. Am I understanding it correctly? That's absolutely right. So, yes, due to their internal domestic support price, uh, roughly what that means is they are able to produce uh, wheat and rice cheaper, uh, not only for domestic consumption, but then also they can export it for a cheaper amount. So, so it's actually disrupting uh, the entire international market. Also, India is not keeping up with their WTO obligations for how much wheat and rice they are to purchase off the international market. So, so when they are over-subsidizing their domestic production and not fulfilling their international responsibilities for imports, that really puts not only just the U.S. Uh, rice and wheat growers, but the entire world who is in production uh, out of whack and on an unlevel playing field.
Absolutely. And that $600 million worth of sales would be nice to get back on our shores, Chandler. But I got a feeling these things are fairly slow. You mentioned it was a year ago this process got started. What do you anticipate for a timeline as far as getting some kind of resolution at the World Trade Organization? Well, you know, I've been, I've been here in D.C. Uh, working in, in agriculture and food policy for 22 years. Uh, if, if the case started today, it would still take us anywhere from two to five years uh, to, to get a settlement, because regardless of, uh, you know, if the U.S. wins, India is going to appeal. If India was to win or, or they were said there's not an issue, you know, the United States is going to appeal. So by the time we get through that whole WTO process, this is going to be a several-year process. And just as we said, $600 million a year, even if we did that times four years, now we're up in the billions of dollars of lost sales for U.S. wheat and rice growers. So the sooner we can get on this, the sooner we can get this done, and, and hopefully we can bring India into the fold of being a good a good WTO player. It'd be nice if we could bring China along too, because they still have not also complied with their ruling in which we won uh, almost a year and a half ago. Oh, wow. Okay. So winning the ruling is only half the battle. Chandler, looking out over 2022, we've got concerns about Russia and the Ukraine. Do you think this will push more international buyers to secure some wheat from the U.S. because they know it'll be able to get shipped this year? You know, that, 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 that turmoil over there, which I think has been going on forever, definitely brings a lot of uncertainty to production. It'll definitely bring uncertainty to ability to get uh, wheat out of that Black Sea region. And then, of course, with the U.S. having the highest quality wheat uh, in the world, I do think that it is, in a mar it is a market opportunity for us to fulfill uh, that uncertainty because we know we've got the production. We know we've got the ability uh, to get our wheat to those other international markets. And so, uh, though it's very unfortunate of the tensions between Russia and, and Ukraine, uh, this could definitely be a good opportunity for us to pick up additional markets or, or reach out to some markets that maybe we had lost to that cheaper, lower quality wheat that comes out of that region. And so uh, we are here. Uh, I know that our U.S. Wheat Associates, our sister organization, continues to work on, on, on expanding the markets they've already developed. Um, but definitely that uncertainty there uh, with the with the threats of Russia coming into Ukraine, it's going to cause disruptions and in, uh, in, in their supply chain on top of COVID and everything else going on. <laughs> yeah, lots of things to dodge this year. Chandler Gould, CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. I appreciate it. Thank you for letting me be on your show and have a good day. You bet. And folks, stick around. Senator Charles Grassley, Iowa senior senator, will join me when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you. And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us Around the Table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, we've seen soybeans surge over $15 overnight, and that has continued here into our day session with beans and meal leading us higher. Corn up moderately with wheat futures up moderately as well. We did see double-digit strength in wheat futures. At one point, we have backed off the highs a little bit. We got new export sales again this morning, uh, 4.85 million bushels of soybeans to China for the 22-23 marketing year and 110,000 metric tons of corn to Mexico for the current crop year. Now, soybeans, we're continuing to watch the weather in South America. That is going to be a big driver, it appears, moving forward as production estimates continue to drop in Brazil. We'll see what we get from private estimates here this week. 
Also, a heated exchange of words occurred Monday between U.S. and Russian ambassadors during a Security Council meeting at the United Nations, continuing to watch the Russia-Ukraine situation and what the U.S.'s role is in that. Corn and wheat traders going to remain on edge until they see how this plays out as money continues to flow into the grains on the risk that Putin may invade Ukraine in a way that might disrupt trade out of the Black Sea region which accounts for 29% of the world's wheat trade and more than 16% of the corn trade. So a lot of things we're watching closely in these markets. Right now, March soybeans up 23 and a half at 15.14. July beans up 22, 15.14 and a half. March bean meal up 10.40 a ton, 4.29.30. March bean oil up 50 points, 65.32. March corn up 5, 6.31. July corn up 4, 3 quarters, 6.24. March Chicago wheat up five and three quarters, seven sixty-seven. March Kansas City wheat up one and three quarters, seven eighty-three. March spring wheat up five and a half at nine twelve. Cattle and hogs mixed to higher. February live cattle up forty-two at one forty. Lean hogs for February down thirty-two eighty-eight fifteen. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. You know, on this show, it certainly seems like we talk about a lot of things that come out of Washington, D.C. Well, I figured it's time to get an update from inside D.C. itself. Joining me today is Senator Charles Grassley, Iowa's senior senator. Mr. Grassley, thanks for taking the time to join us. Glad to do it and glad to be a corn and soybean farmer in Iowa. <laughs> well, Senator, I'm down here in Houston today at the National Association, uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association annual meeting. And I tell you what, there's a lot of talk about the cattle market down here. Senator, you've got the cattle market transparency bill in the Senate right now. Give us uh, give us an update. How do things sit with that uh, piece of legislation? Well, we have one very strong bill that's been put together from a Senator Grassley and a Senator Fisher bill. And it has eight Republican sponsors and eight Democrat sponsors. We're moving right along. I'm very positive that we'll get a good uh, vote uh, by the Agriculture Committee. Uh, Senator Stabenow is willing to have a hearing on the on it. And I've been working on this issue for decades, and this is as far as we've ever been before farther than we've ever been before. So I'm I'm happy to have the Iowa Farm Bureau, the Iowa Cattlemen, the same thing for uh, Nebraska uh, Farm Bureau and Cattlemen, and I hope that we will get the support of the National Association, although I know that the big four meat packers that control 85% of the slaughter that they have a cozy deal through contracting with the big feedlots of Texas, Kansas, and uh, Colorado. And I know there's some opposition to our legislation within the National Association and also, again, uh, by the American Meat Institute. So we're up against some big, uh, powerful groups, but I think we're going to win in the end and protect, get a fair market for the independent cattle producer. 
So, Senator, when do you anticipate uh, Senator Stabenow might put it on the schedule for the Ag Committee? Is that something that might be in the next month or so? Well, it was supposed to be during January, but I'll tell you, uh, the Democrat agenda to do the voting bill, which they weren't successful in doing, and then to spend another four and a half trillion dollars, which wasn't successful on Build Back Better, I think her uh, time was pretty well taken care of by that. So I don't hold that against her, but hopefully she'll be scheduling one pretty soon. Yeah, Senator, you know, from flyover country here, looking at Washington, D.C., it sure sounds like it's a, a struggle to get anything done. You've, of course, spent a season or two in D.C. How have things changed? How is it working with the, the Democrats and the Biden administration here in 2022? Well, when they want to work in a bipartisan way, and 99% of the things we do in the United States Senate has to have 60 votes to stop debate or you don't get anything done. Um, this bill that I just told you about, there's another bill that I'm working with Klobuchar of Minnesota on to uh, challenge the anti-competitive practices of our big tech companies. Uh, that got out 16 to 6, and then I'm working on a, a bill to keep drug prices uh, down uh, with Senator Wyden. That got out of committee 19 to 9. So there's a lot of uh, bipartisan stuff going on here. But last year, the Democrats wanted to do everything in a partisan way. Now I hope that uh, uh, 2022 will be different. They'll want to de deal with a lot of bipartisan legislation. Well, Senator, on the bipartisan front, I know you have been one of the strongest backers of the ethanol industry in Congress. And uh, recently, the EPA said, uh, you know, we're not going to be allowed to sell E15 year round. Last year, I know you introduced a bill to make E15 legal year round. Do you anticipate another one of those coming up this year? Uh, yes, we, we do. But uh, getting it up and fighting big oil in the United States Senate is a difficult proposition. You know, we have probably... 12 states that produce uh, natural gas and oil, uh, that's 24 votes. We have uh, 20, 14 states that produce a lot of corn, that's 28 votes. We ought to be able to uh, discuss these things and reach a decision for the benefit of all. And it seems to me with uh, this administration shutting down uh, XL pipeline, uh, drilling offshore, drilling on national land, uh, uh, putting obstacles in the front of uh, uh, fracking, that they'd be depending upon clean burning, environmentally uh, positive uh, things like ethanol and biodiesel. But they uh, tend to be against anything that has uh, is used in an internal combustion engine, uh, much to our chagrin because Biden uh, uh, campaigned in Iowa during the primaries on strong support for ethanol. So I'm a little disappointed in what uh, is happening with the RFS, even in this new administration. Yeah, yeah, that's a frustration. I think that's echoed by a lot of folks in the ethanol industry. Senator, we're going to have to fund this government. I understand there's going to be some funding bills coming up here in the next month or so. Can you give us the rundown? What's coming on the bill calendar here in the Senate? Well, these are the 12 bills that's wrapped into one that would normally fund government starting October 1st, ending the following September 30th. But we didn't get it done by October the 1st, so we've been operating under a continuing resolution from then. And based upon the leadership meeting that we had in the Republican Party last night, and I'm in that group, we, uh, we're hearing from Democrats that it looks to me like they won't be able to reach an agreement on spending, so we'll have a continuing resolution probably for another month. Okay, and then a month after that, maybe they'll try to find some kind of agreement? Is that how this will work? We'll just CR until we get to the end of the year? I, I, I hope not, because, but the main hang-up is this. Uh, Congress has decided that we need to spend $25 billion more on defense be, 
than what the president wanted to spend. There seems to be a bipartisan agreement to do that, but there's a lot of people in Congress that use the argument that doesn't make sense to me. Well, if you can spend $25 billion more on defense, you ought to spend uh, $25 billion more on domestic social programs. Well, uh, it happens that under our Constitution, uh, national defense is the number one responsibility of the federal government, and it's got to have some priority in what, what's going on with China vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan, what's going on in Russia vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. It seems to me that we, we're still facing a very dangerous world. Yeah, no, I think we certainly are. And, Senator, you know, one of the ways we make that world less dangerous is through trade. People are less likely to shoot at folks they're doing business with. On the administration's calendar over this next year, are you folks in the Senate excited about any trade opportunities, either new trade deals or perhaps a refreshing of an old one? I guess the answer is no. Uh, we aren't very happy with it, and I think this is evidenced by a letter that Ernst and I put together. Uh, in regard to the President of the United States, in regard to China wanting to join what's the equivalent of the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the United States is not part of, uh, we're urging this administration to take a stronger stand to get the United States involved in Indo-Pacific uh, area uh, agreements uh, so we can free up trade. And then the second purpose of the goal is China's uh, pushing to become a part of that, and uh, we consider uh, that that's going to hurt uh, the competitiveness of the United States if we aren't part of that, and we hope China doesn't become a part of it. All right, so lots of things to watch on the trade front. Senator, before we let you go, tax policy was brought up a lot in 2021, especially as it relates to agriculture. We saw potential changes to the step up in basis, potential new transfer taxes added. And as you look out to the, the legislative calendar in 2022, are we going to be fighting these tax changes yet again? Will the Democrats be sneaking them into some bill? I think they're going to try to increase taxes dramatically. But I don't think it'll include the stepped-up basis. I don't think it'll be cutting back on the estate tax exemption. But we all have to remember that uh, that we have to do something between now and 2025 if we're going to maintain the uh, uh, estate tax exemption where it is right now, because uh, it'll be cut in half uh, if we uh, if it sunsets in 2025. So it's going to be a oh. struggle to keep it beyond 2025, too. All right. Any other tax policy changes coming up folks need to be aware of? Well, I just think the big tax increases that they're going to have, particularly as they go after uh, limited liability partnerships, because uh, they, they, uh, they think everybody that's involved in, a, in an LLP uh, is, a, is a crook not paying their fair share of taxes, and that's going to affect a lot of farm organizations, but more from the income tax standpoint than from the estate or stepped-up basis. All right, lots of things happening in Washington, D.C. Senator Charles Grassley, Iowa Senior. Senator, thanks for talk, taking the time to stop by and talk with us today. Give us that update. God bless you. Goodbye. And folks, stay tuned. We'll talk markets with Carl Setzer of AgriVisor when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. 
Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Each and every day, DTN and progressive farmer editors are posting unique, original content to their website at dtnpf.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crops, cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. This is Around the Table, where we discuss the benefits of cooperative ownership. Joining us this week is Cash Yant. He's an animal nutrition sales manager with CHS, and we're going to talk about how to manage a successful winter calving season, minerals and supplements. What's the best mix as you're thinking of approaching calving season? Really what we got to focus about is copper, zinc, and manganese. Those are the three biggest ones that drive every mineral talk that we have in the country. And really it's the ratio of those. When it comes to delivering that mineral though, things to, to weigh is, is labor, or if we're looking for a way to get forage volume, feed volume, and trace minerals into the diet. There's a lot of different ways you can deliver mineral, be it loose, be it in a, in a cake type product or, or in a mineral tub itself, and really just marrying it up to you know, where the shortcomings are on your operation. In the economic environment that we ask these producers to operate in every day, those challenges can, can be pretty big. So don't pay for something you don't need and make something do a little, little extra work for you. Now, Cash, post-calving, what should ranchers keep in mind for their herd health? Trace minerals play a big part on retaining a pregnancy. The cow-calf industry does a great job of getting cows bred, but we do a very poor job of keeping them pregnant. Trace minerals, if we have a deficiency in the diet, the mature cow will actually retain a pregnancy, become pregnant, and then at about day 7 to 11 of that first stages of the pregnancy, she will slough that calf. And if we have enough trace minerals, zinc and manganese play a big role in those. Uh, she will hold that pregnancy. And where that really pays off for us is at the weaning period. Those first cycle calves, those ones born in the first 21 days of the calving cycle, on average are about 50 pounds heavier than their pen mates that are born later in the period. So really focusing on making sure we're getting intake of that mineral and the source of those minerals really pay off as we get later on in the production cycle. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america this is mike pearson and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world information farmers and ranchers need to know aoa now back to mike pearson 
Well, as the first day of February moves forward, these markets are moving quite a bit. Uh, to help us make sense of what's going on in the markets, Carl Setzer, the grains analyst with AgriVisor, joins me. Carl, oof, soybeans are on a roll today. What's going on with the old crop soybean market? Uh, I'll tell you something, Mike. It's, uh, you know, never yell woe in a horse race. And that market is off. It is on fire. And a lot of it is just simply for managed money flowing in from the outside. Um, you know, you look at the charts, we've had buying come into this market. Yesterday, we hit that $15 mark, didn't really trigger much for buying interest. But today, when we pull through it, all, uh, you know, we just shot higher. Some of this coming from the outside markets, some of it coming from, you know, continued South America, the issues down there. But really, at the end of the day, Mike, it's coming back to manage money flow and, and that, that money coming in and just buying soybeans up front here. Um, you know, some talk that it's coming from exports, and, and, and I think exports are a part of it. But you look at the exports we've had here lately, especially to China, those are all for 22-23. Not much on the front side here, but the simple fact that they were in buying during their Lunar New Year tells the market that they're looking for soybeans. Oh, interesting. That makes sense. The timing of the purchase maybe tells us more than the purchase itself. Carl, with old uh, old crop beans here, well over $15, $15.20, $15.30 and change, what's the next target you're keeping an eye out for? Or is this it? Should growers be unloading with both hands if we've got old crop beans? Uh, I'll tell you, I, I'm you know, a firm believer, I think you want to you shell off some ownership here, Mike, get some, you know, turn it into paper. Um, you know, not huge sales, but, you know, I believe we need to stagger in and we're starting to reach, you know, you got to look at a little bit of a chart comes into this and we're, you know, we're going straight up in a market. And that always scares me because when you go straight up, the further you go, the harder that correction is. And to get in front of it, you know, it could be a little bit of a, you know, an issue. Uh, the obviously, you know, 15, you know, we get up to that 1550 mark, which we're only 20 cents away, you know, that's, you know, that'll be looking for some resistance. And as we close in, you know, potentially on $16, um, you got to look at where we're at versus South America. We are currently the highest priced soybean source in the global market. So every time we ratchet up like this, we just remove ourselves a little bit further. Um, I'm getting the, you know, the market overbought, you know, the RSI is pushing 80%. We are ripe for a correction, but as long as that managed money flow continues, you know, the, the sky's the limit really. Right, right. The the market can stay irrational longer than we can stay solvent sometimes when these things start moving <laughs> on new crop soybeans. We're entering crop insurance pricing month. Do, do you want to make any aggressive sales on the new crop beans yet, Carl? I, I don't know as if I would want to say ag aggressive, Mike, but boy, I would certainly um, look at, you know, we're starting to approach $14 for new crop soybeans out of the field. Um, maybe lighten up a little bit, you know, anything that, th this is how I would sum it up, anything you're going to have to deliver during the fall, anything you don't want to pay storage on, um, you know, get that marketed you know, especially get that marketed. And then maybe look at, you know what, uh, maybe I didn't want to peel off a little bit, lower that insurance, you know, how much I have there. Um, not saying you want to dump your entire crop, but boy, it's definitely a place where you want to start thinking about marketing some, even with, you know, your insurance underneath you, you want to get some coverage at this level. Carl, let's look over at the livestock market. Yesterday, we had the cattle inventory report re released from USDA looking at the total number of cattle and calves in the country. Uh, it was down, not terribly surprising. What was your take on the report? You know, it, it, it was. We were down a little bit. You look at that January 1st inventory, Mike, came out 98% of a year ago, at, you know, just under 92 million head. We were pretty much in line with expectations, but, you know, I look a little further. You look at that beef cow herd, down 2.3% on the year. And that calf crop from 2021, you know, down 1%. Now those don't seem like big numbers. And typically you wouldn't pay a lot of attention to them because they're, you know, they're pretty close. But you look at these cold storage reports we've had where our beef supply has been dwindling. 
Um, now, we don't have the Chinese demand yet that we had a year ago, and that's a big game changer. If China shows up and starts buying beef like they did last year, and all of a sudden we start pushing, you know, 1 million metric tons of sales for the year, you know, we need more cattle, not less. And that's where I'm starting to look at. But we don't have that, like I said, that Chinese buying in beef hasn't been there yet. Until that surfaces, we can get by with a little bit lower inventory, but we can't start, we can't give up too much more from here out the rest of the year, Mike. Well, Carl, you touched on that rotation of money managing, uh, moving out of equities and into commodities. Both corn and wheat are higher today as well. Are there any fundamental factors driving either of those markets, or is this just a, a hedge against inflation play? I think a lot of it's that hedge against inflation, but, you know, I'm looking at it. Um, you know, you got to look at global, global, global commodity and global grain uh, values. You know, we do have the, the tensions over in the Black Sea. That shot wheat higher, and then all of a sudden it shot lower, and it's back and forth. Um, you know, it's an acreage play right now, and there is some concern out in the market of lower corn acres this coming year. That's helping prompt up the corn market. But, you know, reports from the field don't indicate we're going to see this huge shifting back and forth. So that's, you know, it's taken a little bit of an edge off it, but still something we're going to watch. Um, you know, grains really right now kind of along for the ride. The one thing I, I am keeping a close eye on between the two is that spread between corn and wheat has narrowed up considerably. That could take some of our wheat feeding away from us, especially with soybean meal starting to rally again, too. All right. Lots to discuss. Carl Setzer of AgriVisor. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. And folks, if you are at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, come by booth 600 tomorrow at 9 a.m. Central. We'll be recording the show live with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. We look forward to seeing you then. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great day. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves. If you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, Call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone.